Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, it's T with Abduction Enigma Podcast. So this week we're going to go a little bit more into the Judy Doherty case. And I'm also going to cover a little bit of Shock Docs, The Visitors. Which is about the Whitley Strieber encounter. Alright, let's get it. Now before we start, I have some very unfortunate news. It is February 19th, and I found out today that Robbie Graham has passed away. He worked on UFOs reframing the debate, as well as silver screen saucers. This is a very huge loss for the field of ufology in general. Robbie Graham has paved the way for many in this field, including myself. I remember hearing him on Hidden Experience Audio talking with Mike Cleland when I was 21, and I was so intrigued and enthralled by the knowledge he had. And last year or so, I actually added him as a friend on Facebook, and I was going to invite him on for an interview, but you know, to be honest, I was a little intimidated to do so. Now, unfortunately, I'll never get that chance. Today, we all suffer a great loss. And my heart goes out to his family and his friends. He is a legendary ufologist. And he will not be forgotten. So I want to say it personally. Thank you, Robbie Graham, for everything you've done. Another thing I also wanted to cover is I wanted to thank Steve Burroughs. He reached out to me about my last episode, letting me know my bumper music was a little messed up, and honestly giving me feedback and just reaching out to me personally. I really appreciate you. Thank you for listening, because I wouldn't keep on doing this if it wasn't for people like you. This is how we get to where we need to go in this crazy field of ufology, and alien abductions specifically. I try to point out the positives and the negatives of a case, so that no one's left in the dark. And I'm glad that you picked up on that as well. So Steve, thank you. Now currently, I'm also watching Shock Docs, The Visitors, which is about communion in Whitley Strieber. And so far, it's been fascinating. It has some of his regressions in there. It's frightening. There's even a tape of him allegedly having that implant taken out of his ear, or the attempt of which. He has interviews with people who also had experiences at the cabin, as well as Ann Schriever. She's on there as well. She was even the one recording the implant almost being taken out. And it's amazing. But here's where my issue comes in. Now, we've got a journalist and a researcher. We've got Jeff and Melissa. And they go back to Whitley's cabin 
which is now owned by a man named Anthony. And he points them to the initial spot of the encounter that Whitley spoke about in the book Communion, which is a circle of, of stones. And I'm going to give you my blind reaction right after watching it, because I paused it. Now so far what I'm catching is this journalist lady, Melissa, is under the impression that this stone circle is a gateway to open up contact to the visitors. Now right there we just jumped right to the woo-woo. And that again is where my issue lies. So she's going to go out there with Jeff and they're going to do some testing. Now I'll read you a piece of the dialogue that's on the screen. They plan to conduct an experiment to see if the stone circle where Whitley was abducted is still active. So let's find out what they come up with. Now according to her, her thought process is that if any anomalies are going to happen, it's going to be at the stone circle. This is due to the fact that people put their intentions into meeting the visitors there. And there could be some kind of anomaly there. Now watching it initially, I had to pause it again. This is what confuses me. So this lady says, it brings up a bigger point of whether the visitors are coming to the area or whether they were trying to get Whitley. So was it the area that brought them there or was it Whitley Streeper? Now as we know from abductions, it's the person, not the place. So we're taking a couple back steps there, and I'll give her credit because she's just a journalist, but regardless, if you're going to do some research, you kinda gotta know that basic fact of alien abductions. They wait until nighttime and they set up REM pods around the stone circle. This is to detect electromagnetic anomalies or energy. They set them up on the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west, which are bigger stones. They then leave them alone to see if they react. All of a sudden, all four went off at once, and they're not supposed to talk to each other back and forth. They then stopped. They then get a recording with beeps and spaces, almost like Morse code. Now, 3,000 miles away, Whitley can allegedly hear the same noises using a little radio, holding it up to where his implant in his ear allegedly is. And he demonstrates for the camera, pulling the radio up to his ear and then back down. As he pulls it back down, the radio stops making noises, and as he pulls it up, it continues to make beeping noises, or static noises. Now after Jeff and Melissa tell Whitley about this, he considers going back to the very spot of his abduction after over 35 years. Now at 3 o'clock that very night, Whitley is sleeping and he has a security camera in his room and his phone falls off of the desk, shocking him awake and making him look over his shoulder due to the loud noise. After this, Whitley decides to make the emotional decision to return back to the cabin one last time. Whitley then takes the drive up to the cabin with a very emotional response. Very upset and almost sad. Whitley then meets with the new owner, Anthony, and explains that he was so reluctant but finally made the decision after these anomalies occurred to go back. 
and Anthony and his wife gave Whitley back his old room for the night to stay. Now contradicting Melissa from earlier, Whitley actually says right here that it is the person, not the location, that these experiences follow. Now he knows this because the experiences followed him. Whitley again wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A mysterious glow appears at his window, like it did 30 years ago. Now at this point, the camera captures the same kind of glow that Whitley recalled under his hypnosis session. At which point the cameras began to glitch, and then suddenly the strange activity stops. We are then shown text, but the message is clear to Whitley. The visitors are our destiny. Future humans returning to warn us. At this point, Whitley begins to note the warnings and dreams and visions of devastation, as we have often talked about in this podcast. And as he knows, most experiencers are told this message. The message of human survival. Now I want to clarify on one mistake I made here, and that's about Melissa Tittle, which is a researcher slash journalist and is on Shock Docs. Now initially watching this, I thought it just said journalist. I didn't see a researcher in front of it. As you can imagine, as I'm watching and writing stuff down, that's kind of how it happens, but I'm also making up for it now. So I'm speaking with my father today, who is well known for watching a lot of UFO stuff. I don't usually watch the television shows that much anymore. And I'm talking to him about the podcast, and I put shock docs on for him. And he tells me, I've seen her on TV. And I think to myself, are you kidding me? Because I already called her out on this podcast. For not knowing the difference on whether an abduction takes place because of the person or because of the area. So she's appeared on Ancient Aliens, Hangar 1 UFO Files, Ancient Civilizations, a show called Deep Space, The Black Knight Satellite, The Untold Story, and many others. So here's what I have to say now, knowing this. Shame on you, Melissa. Shame on you for that very question and not knowing better. This kind of thing is one of the reasons I don't usually watch a lot of UFO shows anymore. I would rather read the book. But this was kind of a special occasion because this is Whitley Streeter. I wanted to check out this documentary. But I just wanted to give a little update on that because I just call her a journalist. Now, some of you may be mad for that statement. But as an investigator and a researcher, you have to specify things like that. You cannot go muddying up the public. So for shame. And another reason I don't like to watch a lot of the shows anymore is because, again, they're very cringy anymore. If my dad was trying to show me, I think she's on UFO Witness, as well as Ben Hansen. Ben Hansen, you know, ugh, whatever. But just shame on this lady. She should know better and tell people otherwise. If you have a theory, you just 
say, I have a theory that this is what's going on. But I digress. And I just want to put that little update in there. So I suppose I need to give my breakdown now. Now, as I've stated before, I believe Whitley Strieber's encounter. It's got too many parallels to abductions before they were even well known. And the cover alone has shaken people who are experiencers. Whitley is a very sweet man who, from what I can tell, only wants to help people and share his experiences, which he faced ridicule for, as we all know. Now, my issues with this documentary have nothing to do with Whitley Street. It would actually be how cringy Jeff and Melissa made it. So right before it cuts to what's supposed to be a commercial, they're both staring up to the sky in the middle of this circle. It's real cringy. Okay, it gives me Hellier vibes. And Hellier was horrible. You know, everything's a synchronicity and such, but I digress. So again, one of my main parts that I take issue with is Melissa. So, she's a journalist, but as I stated before, she doesn't know whether the visitors are coming to the place or for the person. And as I pointed out, Whitley Strieber later confirms that it, they're coming for him, not for the place. So for them to throw that in there, I don't really know why they did that. It just kind of shows that she didn't do her research on it. We then get to the REM pods, which detect electromagnetic anomalies or energy. Now here's my thing. With UFOs, allegedly they leave electromagnetic effects, things like that. Hell, Whitley even talks about trying to capture this stuff on tape and it doesn't happen. Later on, when Whitley goes back, even the cameras start cutting out. Now is this for dramatic effect from the people recording? Possibly. But let's say it happened. After over 35 years, you think those same electromagnetic effects might not still be happening in that same spot? Again, why does it have to be chalked up to the woo-woo? Now it is interesting that as he held that radio up to his ear, it did make noises. It's a little inconclusive in my opinion to say whether in fact it was the same noises, but I did find it odd that might signify that there is something in his ear, which, if I recall, they do have x-rays of. Now, as far as the phone falling off of the cabinet at 3 o'clock, I'm not going to make anything of that. I don't even know what to make of the cameras cutting out at 3 o'clock once he returned again. All in all, I think it was a great documentary. I just have those very little issues. And again, it has nothing to even do with Whitley Streeper. Now, for the sake of copyright purposes, I am inciting fair use on this. It is a transformative work I am teaching the public. So therefore, I will be using brief clips from the television show UFOs Over Earth. And please bear with me on the audio. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Because it isn't the best. We now find ourselves going into the Chris Bledsoe case, which is MUFON case file US 10110200007. In 2008, there was a television show called UFOs Over Earth. It only lasted about three episodes, and the very first episode was called The Fayetteville Incident. In this television series, we follow MUFON investigators, mainly Rich Lang and James Carrion, as they investigate alleged UFO experiences, and in this case, the abduction of Chris Bledsoe. Now, I wish to begin this with some words spoken by Chris Bledsoe in the series. By the way, it's a little jumbled with this sentence, but I'm going to read it to you as it is. I know what I saw. There's no skeptic in the world that can say what they want, sitting behind a desk, but they weren't here. Now, by no means am I a skeptic. Obviously, I'm skeptical of every experience, but I also believe some. But I am behind a desk. And I do no abductions, so I'm going to tear this apart. Chris and four of his friends went fishing at night. Chris leaves his friends and goes up the road, where he has his first encounter. There's two orange, motionless, side-by-side balls of light in the air. And then a third one appeared, in the blink of an eye. Now Chris did not run back down to his friends, but rather a good pace walk to the river where his friends were still at. They all look up to see three lights descending, but this time is three large white lights. They're a hundred yards on the other side of the river. They drop their fishing poles and they head for the truck. Racing away, they go up the road and stop the truck to see something strange and floating in the sky. Now at this point, the show stops here. I'm going to guess for dramatic effect and it doesn't really explain the strange thing they saw right away. Chris then goes home to dogs barking, leading him outside to the backyard to be met with an entity in front of him at an arm's length. Here's a quote from Chris himself. It didn't move. It didn't blink. It had red eyes, but it was glowing. I mean, look at the chill bumps. You see that? You can't fake that, guys. Which, by the way, is goosebumps. And odd that he would actually point that out, that you can't fake that. When asked what the entity looked like, Chris said, It looked like if you dipped a person in glass and it molded to their body, you could see through the glass inside. That's what it looked like. Also noting that the entity was very short. They asked him how he felt about the incident. And he said, if it's going to get him, it's just going to get him. 
and he felt relaxed and at peace. They then asked about the dog. Where was the dog? Well, the dog had run up. And as the dog did and approached, the entity disappeared. Rich Lang then points out that there was no evidence of physical traces around the area. And James Carrion asked, why wouldn't he use the typical gray if he was making it up? We then move to the other men. We then begin with Donnie Ackerman. Now again, please bear with me. I'm just reading from the transcript of what they've said. You could see what were like bright stars, you know? Scattered one, you know, across the tree line. And he could just see them descending slowly. We then go to Gene Robinson. And just like dropping, like I said, looked like a piece of hot steel or something, you know? We then go to David McDonald. They were orange, and you could see separate of the colors. It cuts back to Gene Robinson again saying, they were orange and maybe yellow. And then back to David McDonald. I remember being one on the right, one in the middle, and one toward the left in regards to the lights. That's when Donnie Ackerman began to freak out, much like the Allagash abductions, and said, hey guys, y'all see these? Gene Robinson became so freaked out that he actually brought out his pocket knife. And David claims he began to panic as well. All men claimed that it couldn't have been flares. And Donnie claims that he stood five to ten minutes with the others looking at him. And all men claimed that there was no sound whatsoever. Now, with all that being said, I wish to present a little bit of the clip of MUFON's discrepancies with the case from these three men. One of the big discrepancies was the description of the large light that they saw at the top of the hill. Three of them saw this big ball of light. When we come out of here, before we left, there was a light right on. There was a big light right there in that field there. But uh, Chris Sr. had this very uh, vivid description of what the craft looked like. Uh, so we're not sure what to make of that. Somewhere between there and the highway was uh, the spiked object that I described. It was just another big glowing light. It was like a... But then, you know, like I said, it just kind of just... Hold your hand up like that, kind of try to remember it. Well, if, if from a distance, I could put my hand around it like that, maybe. If you look at the tree in the pole, it would have been, the nose of it would have been at the pole, and the, the rear end of it would have been past the tree. See the horse standing there? Right. That would have been about the back of it, or a little further behind him, and the front of it would have been along this pole over here. It was a good 40 feet. Discrepancy we saw in the stories was this whole issue of missing time where Chris Sr. thought he was gone for a maximum 20-30 minutes from the riverbank, but his companion said he had been gone for hours, and in fact they went to go look for him. Okay, Chris, now, you said it, it, it took you 20 minutes to get up here and back down again. And, yes, sir. Okay, now, what, what, why did the other guys think it took longer than that? Uh, 
I had to been gone a long time. I remember that night that somebody had went looking for him in the truck. The truck was parked right there. When it got dark, you know, we kind of stopped to wondering where Chris had got to. It was just me and Gene down there. Donnie went up the hill to get Chris so he didn't have to walk back or whatever. Went around there. Hey, hey, where you at? All of them said they drove up to the road at the end and drove back. And I know they left because they said they did and the truck was moved. At some point, those guys said that they came up the road and went up there, turned around, and went back. You're standing here the whole time. How could they get past you without you seeing them and them not seeing you? There's no way. Did anybody tell you how much time had passed? Three or four hours. They thought you were gone for three or four hours. Yes, sir. In a case like this where there's time missing, he tells me he can't remember. He tries to remember. He thinks about it. He gets these severe smashing headaches, and he can't remember what happened up there. So at the time, you didn't think it was strange that when you got here, it was just getting dark, and when you got back, it was very dark. That strike you as strange or odd? I have a missing spot in my brain, and I've told Richard this time and again. I, I have a wall. I want to know what happened there. I'm for time at that point. I feel for him. I feel sorry for him because I, I can see that he's really struggling with something. Now, Chris Bledsoe's son, Chris Jr., had his own experiences that night. It was really dark out, and I happened to be looking down that way, and I saw these two orbs, you know, about waist high off the ground, just floating. All I could see was these two bright red orbs side by side. Now, he saw these two orbs enter the woods and turn down the area near the river. He then saw little creatures walking out of the woods, and he says it was dark, but they were skinny. Now, he starts to say that they were wearing something. But Chris Lang interrupts with his field notes. And he mentions that Chris Jr. seems to have some form of angst or internal battle happening. And that he wasn't sure if he actually had experiences or was trying to corroborate his dad's story. What you're going to hear is Chris Bledsoe under hypnotic regression. What happened to Chris Bledsoe is real or fantasy, but we're hoping that regression hypnosis will provide that answer. You do the regression hypnosis, you basically put the client in a state of unconsciousness. Sometimes they refer to it as putting him in a trance. And the psychologist can basically talk to the individual and take the information off their subconscious mind. Now that was field notes from Rich Lang. You're in control here. All I'll be doing is just helping you get to get focused. Dr. Michael O'Connell is a Harvard-trained psychologist. He's got 15 years' experience, and he's probably done a regression hypnosis on somewhere around 250 individuals, and we are very lucky to have him. Yes. You're okay. Regression hypnosis took place on July 14, 2008, and we videotaped it. Where are we going? 
four of them. They're so tall. Skinny. How tall are they? Real tall. Seven foot or better. They're not human. They're not human. Four of them. Uh-huh. I just want to go home. Let me go. I want to see my son. Wherever he was when they were doing this explains where, why. I mean, that would explain why when they come up the hill looking for me, one there. What does the room look like? It's round. It's dark. And there is. But it's... I can see con lights. Controls. I can feel no movement. None. Okay, Michael, go ahead, push it to the limit. Are they telling you why you were chosen? Uh-huh. What reason was that? They're my guardians. Looking after you? Uh-huh. Your well-being? Uh-huh. Every time I get sad, they're here. I know I've been sad. Is that why you come? Are they the same ones that you saw in your backyard later? That's their children. Your children? Uh-huh. They let them out to play. In your backyard? This is just your routine, everyday stuff, you're right. <laughs> Have they been inside your home? Yeah. We've definitely gone through the looking glass today, guys. I've seen the tapes before, but this is one of the best ones I've ever seen. So now we're going to move on to the lie detector test portion, which I find quite revealing. I suffer anxiety in the house. Yeah, just try to be as relaxed as you can. Okay, ready to go? Yes, sir. Testing now again. Is your first name Christopher? Yes. Is there anything in your background that would cast doubt on your honesty or integrity? No. Did you make up any of the information concerning what you saw in the sky on the night in question? No. Have you conspired with anyone to provide false information regarding what happened on the night in question? No. Did you make up any of the information regarding the entity you reported seeing on the night in question? No. How would you summarize the test? Well, I'd say he failed the test. I'm going to tell you that his deceptive responses were focused around things that he actually saw that night. He wasn't being truthful about the entity. I don't think so. What, what do you think he was being truthful about? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's going to be a you know speculation no matter what I say. Is everything he said a lie? You can't glean that just from the polygraph. You can glean that from the investigation, the, the information you collect, and everything should fit at some point. Uh, did you make up any of the information concerning what you saw in the sky on the night in question? How did he score there? Well, uh, if you just took the numerical score, he would have been inconclusive on that. The one he had deceptive response to was the entity, seeing the entity. 
You know, he, he kept saying, I'm not sure myself when I think about it if I really saw it or not, but I know I did. He didn't come right out and tell us everything was a lie, but basically the part about the entity reflected negatively in the polygraph. Now, I also want to throw in the brief clip of them confronting Chris Bledsoe with this information. We're really concerned and wanted to talk to you and get your reaction. Okay. It was an uncomfortable time because I was basically going to hit him right between the eyes with it and see what he says. The question about the entity is where the, the concern came in. Okay. And basically the result, on, as far as the entity was concerned, was, was negative. Okay. Now, I'm trying to help you figure this all out. It was tense. It was uncomfortable for us because we knew it would make him uncomfortable. We really needed to know what he was going to say. I know my mind. Remember me telling you there's like two parts of me. There's an inner part that says this was there. And there's an outer part that says mm, maybe, maybe not. But I know what I saw. And I have nightmares with it. It never leaves my mind. And it was there. I staked my life on it. It was tough. It was tough not to believe him. He was so sincere and so strong about what he was saying. Well, I know what I saw. There is no doubt in my mind what I saw. Whatever this machine says, I don't know. Um, and don't care. But I know what I saw. So I think it's about time for my breakdown of this case. Although I don't really think one's needed, but Bing's their conclusions were that Chris Bledsoe was not a liar and that his, his case is still credible, I kind of have to say something. Because with this being out since 2008 and them only having three episodes, I'm going to take a guess and say a lot of people haven't watched it. Because Chris Bledsoe is on the lecture circuit, he does keep putting out books, and he keeps pushing the fact that he is in fact an experiencer or alien abductee. Now with all the issues they pointed out from Rich Lang and James Carrion, I don't understand why they would actually take this as a legitimate case. Now the man failed a lie detector test. That in itself is damning. Now they also gave him a skid test on this show. So he's not crazy, he passed that. But let's go over the crafts real quick that they said that they saw, okay? Chris originally saw three orange balls of light when he went down the river. Him and his friends initially said they saw three white balls of light. His son saw two balls, or orbs, going into the forest, leading down toward the river. And then one big light, as his friend stated. But Chris stated was a craft about 40 foot long. Now later on, his friends, as they're investigated by MUFON, claimed that the lights were orange and yellow, as Chris initially said. But at the beginning, they reported them as white. Now for the sake of argument, let's say that the three orange balls that Chris saw were the three white lights that his friends saw. That taken into account with his son, we saw the two red balls of light and then the one big ship, or ball of light. We have six UFOs. Six UFOs, one spot, with little people. Later claimed to be the children 
of the aliens. I don't even know where he comes up with the tall skinny figures other than being abducted because he didn't see that initially. That only came out under regression. Now one thing I did note is that this takes both from the Travis Walton case as well as the Allagash case. And you see that with his friends talking as well as them leaving him there with his alleged missing time they went back for him. That throws up a red flag. The lack of physical evidence is another issue I have. Now, James Carrion asked, well, why wouldn't he report a normal alien gray as we know it? Well, he doesn't have to. If he wants to be unique and go on the lecture circuit and write a bunch of books, he doesn't have to do that. And that appears to be the case. At least in my opinion. I see a lot of damning evidence here. And yet this guy still puts out books, people still believe him, and I don't get it because this is from 2008. At the time, I remember watching this. And I listened to the Paracast a lot at that time. So I got on the Paracast forums with somebody that was defending Chris Bledsoe and I brought up this case and I shut them down. And I'm quite proud of that. I believe I was about 20 at the time, so this was about 2010. Now Rich Lane really gets me going. He's really smug. He gets on here, and while that regression is happening, you hear it. But he starts smirking. You know, when he hears what he wants, he just smiles. And he's really pushing for that, you know, I want to believe validation. One of my big issues with MUFON, just one, because I have many, but one of them, is your normal, average, everyday researcher, your guy who gets out there, your field investigator. They don't get cases like this. Okay? James Carrion, Rich Lang, the higher-ups get to go out and actually talk to these people and try to figure it out. Well, as you heard there at the end, this is one of the issues with that. Now, he was shown to be lying, at least in my opinion. There's a bunch of holes in their story, and possibly even his son just trying to cooperate what he said. And they still believe him. This is absolutely insane to me. I have not believed the Bledsoe case since I watched this back in 2010 because it was conclusively proven to me that he was making it up. Now I have to point cases like this out for a specific reason because these people are the ones who muddy up the field they make it seem ridiculous to others and like people are just lying and hoaxing. So I feel like it's my duty to point this out to everybody. Now I want to go back to his phrase. It is a quote from Chris Bledsoe. I know what I saw. There's no skeptic in the world that can say what they want sitting behind a desk. But they weren't here. Well good thing I'm not a skeptic. 
I am a little skeptical. I don't buy into everything I hear. I do an investigation into it. And my audience takes a journey with me into that. These MUFON men also did an investigation into it. And I believe that they failed. Maybe a normal field investigator would not have failed. Now there is one more thing I want to touch on about Chris Bledsoe. I keep up with Stephen Cambion and Truth Seekers. Now I do this because I find him to be very intelligent and it points out when somebody lies to the UFO field. He doesn't just go out of his way to just pick fun at people or call them liars. He has evidence. And about three months ago, he did an episode called Murder in UFO Land. Now he's got two of those so far. This one specifically is the murderer Christopher Gray's story. Now what does this have to do with Chris Bledsoe, you may ask? Well, Christopher Gray murdered his father and was obsessed with UFO Twitter as well as Chris Bledsoe. Now I urge you to go watch the video that Stephen Cambion put up there because he has a still frame on there of a lecture. Now I don't know if this is from Chris Bledsoe or somebody else, but this is what is claimed about Chris Bledsoe. He's a super experiencer. He's in communication with spirit entities, fey folk, angelic, celestial entities, Bigfoot-like entities, divine entities, ghosts. He deals with poltergeist UFOs. He heals others. He has physical evidence, powerful dreams, crop circles, near-death experiences. He has ESP. He sees orbs and is also in contact with the Blessed Virgin Mary, or the Lady. Now Chris Bledsoe also makes himself out to be almost a UFO messiah. And I urge you that if you look into Chris Bledsoe, please take into account this entire episode that I've gone over about him, as well as murder in UFO land and listen to what Stephen Cambion has to say about Chris Bledsoe and some of the investigation he's done. Now this man, Christopher Gray, murdered his father. He was obviously unhinged and somewhat partially due, in my opinion, to Christopher Bledsoe. Now honestly, prior to hearing Stephen Cambion mention this episode, and I watched it, prior to hearing it, I didn't know Chris Bledsoe was still a thing because of this very episode of UFOs over Earth. I had heard Richard Dolan mention it in passing, and I just kind of brushed it off. But now I see so much more. And in my opinion, somebody actually lost their life because of this. Or in part because of this, I should say. Please excuse the reading of this. I tried my best. And there's also a couple little skips and hiccups. So please bear with me through that. Now we touch on the follow-up 
to Judy Doherty's abduction of 1973. Judy's daughter would also get hypnotic regression years later and come out and cooperate her mother's story. On February 1st, 2003, Judy made a statement, although I'm not sure who to because there's multiple sources at the very bottom of this page. This is from ufocasebook.com. Judy starts by saying, First I must say, there is no doubt that abductions exist. My abduction took place in 1973. There were 16 eyewitnesses to the craft, though not all remember the abduction. This was first reported to Ellington Air Force Base in Texas, who denied anything was on radar at the time. Our abduction was also returning from a bingo game in Houston to our home in Texas City, first going by Alta Loma to drop off sister and brother-in-law. There was another sighting of three people coming from the bingo game in Houston that got burned by the effects of the sighting. Our sighting was almost a year before theirs. So much happened that night. I would not attempt to go into detail. We were all changed and have never been the same since. We were first ridiculed so much by others who were not present, my family mostly. I did not talk about it for a few years. Then my husband returned from Vietnam and we were stationed in Yuma, Arizona. I somehow heard about APRO. I called them and told them about my sighting, and the very next day, a Mr. Daughtry and his wife and a doctor who had experiences in hypnosis named Rose Tennant came to my house and spent the entire day going over what happened. Dr. Tennant regressed me and a few details came out. I've been having terrible migraines and just the amount of surfacing relieved much. I know I remember a formula that was given to me by a small gray alien. I think that is what caused a lot of problems. I did not say anything to anyone else as I was still gun shy and afraid of ridicule. A few years later I got a call from a lady named Linda Moulton Howe. We talked for a long time of her trying to convince me I needed to be regressed again for a TV documentary she was doing called Strange Harvest. For some reason I began to trust her and she convinced me she believed what I was saying. And as all abductees know, this is one of the most important things to help one get on with their life. In my abduction, I witnessed a small calf being transported in a large craft. At that time, I was somehow teleported or astro projected or something as I was in the craft seeing what was going on as well as standing by my car. I had gotten out to see what the huge light was that had been pacing our car for about 20 miles or so. Anyway, I allowed Dr. Leo Sprinkle from the University of Wyoming to do the, his regression. It was about a three-hour regression. I fulfilled Mrs. Howe's agenda. She got an Emmy 
for her documentary. But I was left with all the information in my head that still needed siphoning. I asked her to help me write a book to be able to tell the amazing things that I was told and shown. She agreed, and then she kept putting it off. Both her and Dr. Leo Sprinkle used my case for their own agenda and had little else to say to me. I guess I'm trying to warn all of you to be careful who you trust. My main concern was I always wanted my abduction to be presented in a way that it would not be constructed as a crazy woman venting boredom. So again I pulled myself into a shell and talked to no one. I was contacted by sightings to do a follow-up, and I called Linda Moulton Hound. She told me it would make the story unbelievable to the average person, and that I should not do it. So I turned them down. Later I learned she had a rift with Mr. Winkler, and that was the only reason she did not want me to do the show. I was warned to keep my mouth shut. But Mrs. Hound never told this to me. She told the ufologist who called me. In other words, the government did not want me to say anything about a formula that was given to me. I became frightened, and this is the first time I have shared anything. I hope someone reads this and will contact me, give me advice, or help as the abduction is 30 years old. I am 63 before I die, I would love to know, many already know, why they do not want me to tell my story. Thanks for listening. So as you can see there, they pretty much used her. So I had to give a bit of a follow-up, because I found this after my initial podcast, because I did further research. This is quite sad. And if she is still around, I hope that she reaches out to me, or somebody puts us in contact. I will be reaching out to her if I can find her. Now here's the difference. I don't want anything from her. I don't want to put it in a book. I don't want to ridicule her. I just want to talk to her between me and her and keep it between ourselves. So if anybody does know her, please have her get in contact with me. Now as far as Linda Howe goes, of course, as I warned you about from last episode, Linda Howe has been known to fake a lot of things what I gathered here is she had a problem with some people and she used this lady now it's the same thing with Dr. Leo Sprinkle reading this letter from her I have just lost a lot of respect for him as a person helping abductees keep in contact with them if you're the one working with them and hypnotically regressing them. Keep contact with them. Make sure they're doing okay. That kind of thing. Don't just give up on them after you have your shit. Now the information of her faking things is also from Truth Seekers. And I'm referring to Linda Helm. I urge you to also check out that work from Stephen Campion. She got busted on camera. And got real offensive over stealing something. So while this whole episode seems to be real debunky, there are legitimate UFO cases and alien abduction cases 
that are fascinating and make a lot of sense. It's one of the reasons I wanted to put the shock dogs part in there. Because otherwise this whole episode is just me being a debunker. When honestly there is also fascinating cases out there. Now interestingly most of which are not going to be these big name people who have to go on the lecture circuit and things like that. Rather they're your everyday Joes. Doctors, lawyers, your mill workers, warehouse associates, many others. Everyday folks face these issues. They're not just people who go on a lecture circuit and write a book. Some people keep it to themselves. Now that is not to say that all of the people out there doing lectures and writing books are liars, because I believe some of them. Debbie Cobble is a great example, Whitley Strieber, John Yost, and many others. So I just wanted to clarify that little bit, because again, this episode seems very debunky. Now with that being said, I'm going to let you guys go. I want to thank the Ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. And I do want to thank Stephen Cambion. I urge you to go check some of his stuff out. I want to thank you guys for listening. And of course, I want to thank again, Robbie Graham. For all he has done, not just with his book, Silver Screen Saucers and UFOs Reframing the Debate, but his lectures and appearing on shows like Ancient Aliens and things of that nature. Again, today we all have a heavy loss, even though I am posting this later on. Thank you guys for listening. Just remember, the UFOs want to tell you something. Keep kicking it.